The reading is taken from the second letter of John. Um, you'll find it in the soft-covered Bible on page 872. And in the hardcover Bible, if you have one in front of you, on page 273 of the New Testament section. So, second letter of John. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. This is God's word. Thank you, Lyndon, very much indeed. I'll do keep uh, the Bible open at the second letter of John, and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realise that if we are to hear your voice this morning, that we are fully dependent upon your Holy Spirit Please pour out your spirit upon us in fullness that our deaf ears might hear, that our blind eyes might see, and that our dull minds might be gloriously and wonderfully renewed. We ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Beethoven. It seems that the composer, Ludwig van Beethoven, might have poisoned himself. Uh, That's the the verdict of Professor William Walsh, who is a a scientist from Illinois in North America, after studying uh, strands of hair from the body of the famous composer. Apparently, Beethoven's body contained a hundred times the normal amount of lead 
Uh, So Dr. Walsh concludes that Beethoven's premature death at the age of only 57 was due to lead poisoning. And the most likely cause was the the frequent visits that he paid to his favourite spa where he went for relaxation and refreshment. Now, I'm sure you can pick up the tragic irony here. Uh, The very thing that Beethoven thought was doing him good, uh, thought was refreshing him, thought was enabling him to cope with all the pressures and problems of life, was in reality poisoning him to death. Now, in the Christian life, false teaching is just like that. It is spiritual poison. But it doesn't always feel like it at the time. No, when people sit under false teaching, then rather like Beethoven in his spa, they sincerely believe that it's doing them good. But the truth is, it is spiritually toxic and prolonged exposure is nearly always fatal. Now that's what motivated the Apostle John to write the little letter that we're studying together this morning. And although John's second and third letter, uh, which we're going to be looking at next Sunday morning, although these two letters are the shortest books in the New Testament, their message is as relevant and as urgent for us as if they had only been written last week. Why do I say that? Well, on the reverse of the question sheet, the orange question sheet you were given when you came in, I've given you a quotation from a book entitled This Little Church Went to Market. It has the intriguing subtitle Is the Modern Church Reaching Out or Selling Out? Uh, The author is commenting on the message coming out of so many so-called seeker-sensitive churches today. And he says this, Many within these churches would loudly proclaim that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but they have redefined salvation. Under the quote-unquote new gospel, Salvation is not simply the forgiveness of sin and the imputation of righteousness. It is not a deliverance from the wrath of God for a deserving and rebellious people. The new gospel is a liberation from low self-esteem, a freedom from emptiness and loneliness, a means of fulfilment and excitement a way to receive our heart's desires, a means of meeting our needs. The old gospel is about God. The new gospel is about us. The old gospel is about sin. The new gospel is about needs. The old gospel is about our need for forgiveness. The new gospel is about our need for fulfilment. The old gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The new gospel is attractive. Many are flocking to the new gospel, but it is altogether questionable how many are actually being saved. End quote. 
So that's what one expert believes is happening in church culture in the West today. And it's because something rather like this was happening 2,000 years ago that John wrote his second letter. And if that's right, well then obviously we need to hear what the Apostle has to say. So what does he have to say? What is the message of this little letter? Well, to get us started, please will you notice that the letter opens and closes with a greeting. It opens in verse 1 with a greeting to the chosen lady and her children. And it closes in verse 13 with a greeting from the same lady's sister. And so we naturally want to know, who are these mysterious ladies? Uh, John doesn't actually give us their names, they're anonymous, but he does tell us certain things about them. And for a start, obviously, they're sisters. It's also clear that they're married because they have children. And it appears that the Apostle John, who describes himself as the elder, has got a close personal relationship with both these families. But still we ask, who on earth are they? Now some people have said that uh, John is writing to a specific individual who's doing her best to raise her family in the ways of the Lord. Now that is possible. But most commentators today disagree with that and they say that the phrase, the chosen lady, is a reference to a specific local church. And that's because the word church in Greek is feminine Uh, And the word lady, of course, would agree with that. Also, in Revelation chapter 21, John refers to the church as a bride. But I think what clinches it for me is that it's highly doubtful that the aged apostle, uh, now in his mid-80s, would write to a female Christian asking that they love one another which is what he does in verse 5. I don't think that John would do that. So I would suggest that the the most convincing explanation is that the two sisters are sister churches, that their children are the individual members, and that the Apostle John is related to both because he's the overseer of a cluster of house churches in the city of Ephesus and all around. But what was the purpose? Why did John feel he needed to write this letter? I wonder whether you picked up the atmosphere, the tone of the letter, as Lyndon was reading it for us. I don't know whether you agree with me, but it struck me that there is a balance here of warmth on the one hand and warning on the other. So on the one hand, uh, John says in verse 1 that he loves this church. And in verse 4, he says that it has given him great joy to hear about some of the marvellous things that are happening there. So there is a tremendous warmth. But on the other hand, there's also a sense of danger. You'll find that, for example, in verse 8, where John says, Watch out! that you do not lose what you've worked for. John's giving them a warning. Why? 
Well, we know from other sources that when John was uh, writing this letter, the gospel was spreading rapidly, house churches were being planted all over the place. And immediately, of course, we this morning can connect with that because in recent years there's been a, a burst of church planting in Cape Town. In fact, there are at least seven other churches within just a few hundred yards of this building. Most of them have only been there for, well, less than a few years. But there was also a problem. Because although the apostles' writings uh, were being copied and distributed, from the original group of twelve apostles, John was the only one left alive. And at the same time, the the number of travelling preachers and missionaries was increasing. And their message sometimes sounded very different from the message being preached by the apostles. Some of them were claiming that they had fresh spiritual insight that, that could really meet other people's felt needs. And they said that by comparison the apostles' teaching was really actually rather primitive and unsophisticated. And in light of this new gospel, the most pressing question on the mind of the apostle John was how these young churches were to be kept strong in the true faith. And so the apostle urges this little house church to embrace two active priorities. You'll find these on the inside of the bulletin as always. First, he says, they must practice the truth. They must practice the truth. Verses 1 to 6. Now, I think it's very striking that John uses the word truth five times in the first four verses. Just look at this with me. In verse 1, He writes to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. Well, we'd have to be pretty dense, wouldn't we, not to pick up that the thing that is uppermost on John's mind is truth. And I think that means that the Apostle John would be extremely uncomfortable if he were to be translated into our postmodern culture. He wouldn't have been able to come to terms with it at all. Because postmodernism rejects the concept of absolute and universal truth. It insists there is no such thing as the truth in the singular. There are only multiple truths in the plural and it doesn't really matter if these truths contradict each other. John completely disagrees with that. He keeps on referring to what he calls the truth, meaning the absolute objective universal truth which God has revealed in Jesus Christ. And just look at what he says about it. 
In verse 1, he says it's a truth that we can know. Well, we were thinking about that in the first letter last week. We don't need to say more about it this morning. But then in verse 2, he says it lives in us as a transforming power. Again in verse 2, he says it's going to be with us forever, meaning that the truth is not just a temporary thing. No, no. For the true believer, the truth has got eternal significance. And you know, here the really interesting thing is that this truth is not mere head knowledge because, verse 4, we can walk in it. We can seek to conform our lives to it. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, according to John, more than anything else, walking in the truth, practising the truth, means loving one another. Because if the word truth occurs five times, the word love also occurs five times in the first six verses. Did you notice that John is writing to the church whom I love in the truth? So when John thinks about his relationship with this local church, truth and love belong together. They can't be separated. Now we all know, don't we, that if we're Christians, then we're to love our neighbours and even our enemies. But what binds us to our fellow Christians in love is the truth that we share. Truth is the basis of the love that Christians have for one another. You see, we love one another not because we're temperamentally compatible or because we share the same hobbies and interests or because we're naturally drawn to one another but because of the truth that we've accepted that we're all basing our lives on the same reality. I mentioned David Jackman's commentary last week. He makes a good comment about this. He says, quote, Knowledge of the truth, as it is in Jesus Christ, produces a deep bond of love between all who share it. As the first letter taught us, to know Christ is to love him, and to love Christ is to love all those who are united to him by faith. But that special characteristic of mutual support and loving care among believers is rooted in the soil of truth. It is because Christ really is who he claimed to be that those who trust in him are transformed by that relationship. End quote. And to all of these statements from John about loving in the truth, I suppose we could add one from the Apostle Paul. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he speaks about the need to truth in love. He actually turns a noun into a verb. It's normally translated as to maintain the truth or to speak the truth. But the words maintaining and speaking are not there in the original. 
Paul simply talks about truthing in love. So, according to John, we are to love in the truth. According to Paul, we are are to truth in love. And according to both, in the local congregation, truth and love belong together and should never, never be separated. But sometimes, of course, we don't get the balance quite right. There are many Christians, aren't there, who are terrific champions of truth. And boy, don't we know it! They have a very sensitive theological nose. Uh, They can smell heresy a mile away. Their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles begin to flex. They roll up their sleeves and they're ready for a fight. Now, of course, we admire their commitment to truth. But we wish they also had an equal commitment to love. Don't you agree? But then, of course, there are also people who make the opposite mistake. They are great champions of love. Come, they say, let us love one another. It doesn't really matter what we believe as long as we love one another. Let's drown our doctrinal differences in the ocean of brotherly love. Now again, of course, we admire their commitment to love. But we wish they had an equal commitment to the truth as our Lord Jesus Christ did and as the Apostles did. Now friends, you see, the the fact is that truth is hard if it isn't softened by love and love is soft if it isn't strengthened by truth. We must have both. And to help us get the balance, we remember, don't we, that Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth. But we also remember that the first fruit of the Spirit is love. So, if truth and love belong together in the Holy Spirit, surely they belong together in us. And John reminds us that loving one another is not optional. It's not something that we can do when we feel like it and ignore it the rest of the time. It is a, it's a command. Look at what John says in verse 5. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Now, we need to pause on this because there are two surprises here. The first is that if we were in John's shoes, this is almost certainly not the first thing we would say. Remember the context. Here's a church that's almost certainly going to be exposed to false teaching. So, if you and I were writing this letter, the first thing that I think we would say is make sure you know the truth. Make sure you've got your theological ducks in a row. But that's not the first thing that John says. The first command that John gives is love one another. 
It was a major theme, of course, in his first letter, and here it is again. So the first line of defence against false teaching is not more Bible study. Bible study is vitally important, as we're going to see in a moment, but the first line of defence against false teaching is loving one another. And what does that look like? Verse 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. I'm not going to ask who gave that answer in the discussion in Family Focus, but I doubt very much whether anybody did. And again, it's a surprise, you see, because the love that John is talking about does not start with the emotions. John isn't asking, do you have feelings of love for your brothers and sisters? And if you do, well, please make sure you're demonstrating them. John is not saying that. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying that love for one another starts with the will. We set ourselves to work for each other's good in obedience to God's commands. And we do this irrespective of how we might be feeling about one another. Actually, more often than not, what happens here is that our actions of concern and care do really develop into sincere affection and love. In other words, in the Christian life, I think it's true to say that the the feelings of love follow the actions of love. And to give us a picture of what these actions of love ought to look like, just keep a finger in 2 John and let's turn to the most famous chapter on love in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's page 812. 1 Corinthians 13, page 812. Now the context is important here because Paul is writing to a church that's tearing itself apart with division and jealousy. And in this chapter, Paul's showing them how they ought to be in their dealings with each other. We'll pick it up at verse 4. Verse 4, this is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Please notice, will you, the repetition of that word always in verse 7. You see, in our dealings with one another in the local church, love never has a day off. Love is always on duty. Now that's the standard. And uh, when I compare my own life against it, I'm painfully aware of how often I fall a very long way short. And I'm sure some of you feel that too this morning. 
But friends, let that not discourage us. Because every day is a new day in Jesus. Isn't that right? It really is possible for you and I to love one another like this. Why? Because God never, never gives us a command without giving us the ability to obey it. So can I challenge you, as I challenge myself this morning, to pray for more Holy Spirit power to love one another like this. Because this is what it means to walk in the truth. John says it's actually our first line of defence against false teaching, which actually means in the end that our salvation might actually depend upon it. Well, come back to 2 John. Because if the first active priority that John wants us to embrace is that we practice the truth, the second is that we protect the truth, verses 7 through 11. Now, it's very interesting, this, because although in our NIV Bibles uh, there is a new paragraph at verse 7, actually in the original, the first word in verse 7 is the word because. And that's telling us that what John is about to say follows directly from what he's just said in verses 4 to 6. In other words, what he's really saying is walk in love because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Now, of course, we met these deceivers and their false teaching in the first letter. And uh, the fact that they're here again this morning is a warning that in every age, the attack on the church nearly always begins with a lie about Jesus. And in John's day, the reason that it was so very serious is that it wasn't simply a matter of a few individuals with private unbelief. No, no, it was public denial. These people were bringing a message. They were actively teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And so you see, what what John is trying to establish here is that the word which once became flesh is still flesh and always will be, that the Christ who ascended to the majesty of the Father is also the human Jesus. In other words, there is already, right at this moment, even this morning, a glorified man in heaven. Now that truth lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is the basis of all our hope that one day we too will be with Jesus in physical resurrection bodies, never having to face death. Now that is the truth that the church must protect at all costs. And so the warning in verse 8 is an urgent warning. Watch out. Literally the word means look to yourselves that you do not lose what you have worked for. 
You see, he's warning the church not to become complacent about the truth. If they do, if if the deceivers are allowed to proclaim their message unchecked, then all the gains made by the church leaders in evangelism and discipleship and church growth will be lost because, quite frankly, the next generation won't know what to believe. Now, where is this danger today? Well, today, I put it to you that the highest value in our culture is entertainment. Is that right? It is, isn't it? And inevitably, entertainment has found its way into the culture of the church. One writer has noticed this, and what he has to say is especially powerful because this man is a non-Christian, so he's not from within our camp. Listen to what he says. Christianity is a serious and demanding religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. There is no doubt that it can be made amusing. The question is, by doing so, do we destroy it? You don't need me to answer that. Now that comes from a non-Christian. And he seems to, to see things a great deal more clearly than many Christian leaders today. So we really do need to protect the truth. And John says that means three things in particular. First, John says we must guard against novelty. We must guard against novelty. Look with me at verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now that phrase, uh, runs ahead, is an echo of what the deceivers were saying about themselves. They were saying something like this. Look, uh, we used to be where you people are and we used to believe roughly the same kind of things about Jesus. But now we've moved ahead in our thinking. And quite frankly, we advise you to do the same. Novelty is always deceptively attractive, especially when it is packaged as progressive thinking. We don't want to be left behind, do we? That, of course, was the situation, you remember, which the Apostle Paul found in Athens, didn't he, in Acts chapter 17. You may remember that the the great men of the city spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to what? The latest ideas. Couldn't make their minds up about any of them. No, new ideas always have an irresistible fascination for us. But what John is saying here is that if anybody comes to you claiming to be a progressive Christian thinker, be very careful. They may have run so far ahead that they've actually left God behind. Because to run ahead of the Jesus that we find in Holy Scripture isn't progress. It's backsliding at best and apostasy at worst. Beware of novelty. Second, John says that protecting the truth means continuing in the teaching of Christ. 
You see, the warning here is that no one can deny the Son and retain the Father. And yet, today, there are many people who are trying to do precisely that. They want to have God without Christ. They can't see why it's necessary to believe in Jesus as long as they believe in God. But our response to that is that it is the Son who reveals the Father to us, who reconciles the Father to us. Can't have the Father without the Son. It's impossible. The Father and the Son are inseparable. One God forever. That's why we must continue in the teaching of Christ. Third, protecting the truth means not endorsing the deceiver's ministry. Not endorsing the deceiver's ministry. Come with me to verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Now, it has to be said that over the years that verse has caused a great deal of angst amongst sensitive Christians because they know that they're meant to be hospitable. We are meant to be a hospitable people. John seems to be saying that we should not show hospitality to people with different religious views from our own. So, they ask, well, you know, is he saying, is John saying that when the Jehovah's Witness rings the doorbell on Saturday morning, which he always does at my house, that I should actually leave him on the doorstep and not invite him in for a cup of coffee and share the gospel. Is that what John's saying? No, he isn't. Remember, will you, that he's writing to a church, and in those days, churches used to meet in private houses. So what John is forbidding here is not a private invitation into the home where we might win the person to Christ over a meal. Not that. Now, what he's forbidding is the official invitation into the pulpit. John says that to do that is to share in the deceiver's wicked work. It is actually spiritual suicide. So, friends, this then is... John's message to churches that are under pressure to change the gospel and adapt to the culture. And it's a very real pressure. If we are not to imbibe dangerous levels of spiritual toxicity, we must practice the truth by loving one another. And secondly, we must protect the truth on which we are basing our lives by guarding against novelty, by persevering in the gospel of Jesus and by refusing to endorse the ministry of those who promote a different message. So let's ask God to help us. Shall we pray?
Heavenly Father, the Holy Scripture warns us that there will always be people in churches who will not put up with sound doctrine but will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We see that happening everywhere today. The pressure is real and we are frail creatures. Father, please help us to take the message of this letter to heart. In all our dealings with each other, may truth and love never be separated. And please help us to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, once for all delivered to the saints. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.